Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we are in a series that we are finally ending on our core values. And of course, uh, we've been in this series, it's, five, it's been five weeks long, but with uh, New Year's and Christmas Day worship, we um, have extended it. So it's been uh, over the past, I believe this is our seventh week. Um, as we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, um, I'll, I'll just share this with you. Um, this topic on gospel centrality is very important. It's actually what I think and what I hope is um, to be the most important of the core values. And so 1 Corinthians 15, there's a lot in this passage. Um, I've preached this passage a few times, and, and every time I go back to it, there's something new, and, and, and i got to focus on other things. And so we're not going to be able to get to all of it, uh, but what we will do is we'll really nail verse 1, uh, really, really, uh, we'll go deep into verse 1, and then we'll kind of um, look over briefly the other verses. So read with me 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Uh, Father, we pray and we ask just in this hour now that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to us through your word and that he would be instructing us in the ways we need to be instructed, that he would be teaching us in the ways that we need to be taught, that he would be correcting us in the ways we need to be corrected. He would be comforting us in the ways we need to be comforted. He would be reminding us, Lord, of the things that we need reminding of. And so we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon the preaching of your word so that, Lord, as you speak through this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, your people would be blessed because they heard your voice. In the name of Jesus, we pray. You know, as I already said, we're finishing up our series in the core values by looking at our fifth and last core value. Um, but here's what's interesting. Although this is the last core value, like I said, I actually think gospel centrality is the most foundational core value. It's actually the most important one. So the natural question is, well, why did you save it for last? Um, and it might be, makes sense to put it this way, it's the same reason that sometimes when you... Uh, when you eat dinner, you save the best piece for last. You know, I, I've shared with you I love eating steak, and so I always save that one, you know, that one piece that, uh, that just it glistens like it came from heaven, which is really the light hitting off the fat. But, um, 
you know, you save that one piece for last. You save the crispiest for last, the plumpest, the juiciest, the most flavorful. You save that for last. Why? Because when you finally finish your meal with that last piece, it kind of brings everything together, right? You know all is good with the world now. <laughs> and so in the same way as we end our core values, I wanted to end with what I thought was the most important core value, and that's gospel centrality. Because gospel centrality, actually, it holds everything together. It's the thread that unifies all of the core values, because without gospel centrality, without the gospel, everything falls apart. And I've wanted to say this for every core value, um, but I didn't want to be the boy who cried wolf and always say, this is the most important one, this is the most, but really, this is the most important one. This core value it's so important that I would say this. If we fail at gospel centrality, but we excel at everything else, we're kicking butt in global missions. I mean, we are going out, we are affecting the community in mercy and justice. We are raising disciples thousands at a time. We are meeting every day of the week in community fostering. But if we failed in gospel centrality, then I would say we've failed. That's how important I believe this is. In fact, I was thinking about it and, and thinking, it's almost even silly to say that gospel centrality is a core value. Because that's like somebody saying, you know, I'm really committed to blood and oxygen. I'm really about blood. I'm really about oxygen. Well, what do you mean you're really about it? You don't, you, you're, you're not about it. The only way that you move and have your being is because you have blood and oxygen. And in the same way, the gospel needs to be the blood running through this church's veins, and the gospel needs to be oxygen that fills this church's lungs. That's how central the gospel needs to be, and so I really want to get that point across. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, here's the gospel truth. People saved by the gospel must never move beyond the gospel only deeper into it. People who are saved by the gospel must never move beyond the gospel, only deeper into it. So we're going to look at four things as we consider 1 Corinthians 15. And the first one is this, the definition of the gospel. The definition of the gospel. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Paul writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. Now what does gospel mean? And now, most people understand the gospel to be a genre of the Bible, the first five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels. Well, that's not what Paul means here in this context. The word that we translate gospel is actually the Greek word evangelion, where evangelize comes from. The word evangelion means announcement, or it means news. And so when Paul is preaching to the Corinthians, he's reminding them what he's preaching to them is an announcement. It is a news of a historical, objective report of something that has happened. And this is really important for us to know. The New Testament writers didn't make up the word gospel. They didn't make up the word evangelion. That was already a word that existed in the Greek vocabulary. And so when Christians, when Jesus Christ came and he died for the sins of man and he resurrected and Christians were going, how do we talk about this? Somebody went, you know, there's this great Greek word, evangelion. We should use that word. We should adopt that word. Why? Because the word evangelion in the Greek context meant this. It was an announcement of victory in battle. 
announcement of victory in battle. So two nations, two armies would go and they would fight. And when one nation won, the messenger would leave the battlefield in haste and he would bring back an evangelion. He would bring back good news that their army had won. And because of that, everyone would celebrate. It would be great news. And so what the New Testament writers did is they borrowed this word, evangelion, because they looked at what Jesus Christ came to do, and they said this word perfectly encapsulated, captures what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus came, and he waged war against Satan. He waged war against sin. He waged war against death. And through his own sacrificial death and through his victorious resurrection, he won the battle. And because he won the battle, all prisoners, the sin and the guilt and the condemnation are set free. And so now, these messengers are to take that victory of, that that message of victory, that announcement of a battle won, and they need to go announce it to the ends of the earth. So, So we need to understand, that's the definition of gospel, evangelion, it's announcement. And the reason that I wanted to start here is because I think so many times people misunderstand Christianity. They misunderstand the gospel and they begin to twist it from announcement to advice. We end up thinking Christianity is not the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus, but we end up taking Christianity and thinking it's advice about how to live a better life, about how to get into heaven, about how to please God through our moral efforts and our achievements. And so what we end up doing is when we turn the gospel from announcement into advice, we really rob it of all its power, of all its joy. Now, here's my favorite illustration about um, illustrating this point. Imagine that you're an American soldier, and it's World War II, and you've, you've been taken prisoner in Germany. And as you're in the prison, the days turn into weeks, turn into months, and you're cold, you're starving, you're, you've been, you're being beaten, you're utterly hopeless, but somehow a small radio gets smuggled into your camp. And so when all the guards leave, you're going through the different frequencies, and you come across an American news broadcast, and you leap for joy. And the message you hear says, you know, this, to all captured American soldiers, Do not despair. We have a hopeful update for you. Military strategists from all over the U.S. have been studying the layout of German imprisonment camps. We've discovered that escape is possible. First, you need to assemble a team of at least eight healthy and able-bodied soldiers. Second, you need to acquire for yourself a two-way radio transmitter and then transmit your coordinates to us. Then you need to, man it, you need to overcome the guards. You need to steal their firearms. You need to outrun their search party. You need to cross the German border. And if you do that, you can be saved. Now, how is that hopeful? Because everything that was just announced is impossible. This is not good news. This this is advice of how you pretty much can save yourself because if you've crossed the German border, you're saved. You know, the despair of being in prison and hearing this kind of message is the same kind of despair that you should feel when people tell you Christianity, the gospel, is about living and loving like Jesus. It's about doing enough good deeds so that you can impress God and you can get into heaven. I mean, you hear that and you think, that's impossible. Why would that be good news? Rather, the gospel is more like this. 
when you turn on the radio, you hear this message. To every captured American soldier, do not despair. We have a hopeful update for you. American troops have stormed the beach at Normandy and won a decisive victory. Germany has surrendered. Their, Their troops are retreating. The Allies are making great advance. Already 25 camps have been set free. We estimate that within the week we will reach you, all the German camps, and you'll be able to return home. So sit tight. Don't lose heart. We're coming for you. That is good news. That is gospel. That is announcement. The same kind of assurance and joy and hope that you would have hearing that is what the gospel provides. So the definition of the gospel is not the advice of how you're called to live a good life, but it's the announcement of how God has sent Jesus to rescue you. So that's the first point, the definition of the gospel. Second is this, reminders of the gospel. Look again with me at verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. They're already Christians. They're already believers. He's already been there, preached the gospel. But he comes back and he says, I'm reminding you again of what I preached. I'm reminding you again of the Gospels. Because just as the Corinthian believers needed to be reminded, we need to be reminded of the Gospel. What's interesting is Paul doesn't come and he doesn't bring a new message. He doesn't bring a message of new secret teaching or hidden mysteries. He knew what they needed. And what they needed was to be reminded of the same truth over and over again. Now, here's the thing. Many Christians hear the gospel preached, and then they kind of roll their eyes, and they think to themselves, okay, I get the gospel. Can we move on to something else? Now, as soon as a Christian says, I get the gospel, now let's move on, you have just proven that you do not understand the gospel. If you want to move beyond the gospel, that means your understanding of it is very shallow. Because the gospel is not something you move beyond. It's something that you go deeper into. I was reading a book this, this past week, and, and it was a great illustration, um, and this great quotation um, that came up. It's by Jared Wilson, and he says this, I have heard it said that the gospel is shallow enough that it's safe for a toddler to swim in, yet deep enough to drown an elephant. We might also think of it this way. We teach our little ones how to read by teaching them their ABCs. From there, they, move, they may move on to the basic principles of phonics. ABCs and phonics are scaled for little children to grasp the English language. But some people get advanced degrees in linguistics. Same category, different levels. The gospel is like that. The ABCs of the gospel work very well for people at all levels of their faith. And what that means is this, that no matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how good of a grasp that you think you have on it, you still need to hear it week after week, day after day, hour after hour. In fact, I would say this, real growth and maturity in Christ or in the gospel looks like this. A person never stops talking about the gospel. He doesn't move on. 
He doesn't think it's like the kiddie pool where he stands in it and it reaches his ankles. He understands that if he plunges into it, it is as deep as that an elephant could be drowned. A person who understands the gospel understands that there are treasures in it yet to be seen. And, and I'm belaboring this point. I'm emphasizing over and over again because I really want us not only to understand the depths of the gospel, I, I really want us to be in a position where we understand how little we understand about the gospel. That doesn't mean you don't have saving knowledge of it. I believe that if you know enough of the gospel, you will be saved. But I want us to be in a position of humility where we admit that the very fact that we get tired of gospel preaching means that we don't yet have a grasp on his riches. The very fact that our, relationships with, that our relationship with Jesus isn't overflowing with joy, right? the fact that, that we can sit here and we can worship songs without tears streaming from our eyes means that there's still so much more to grasp. You know, the Christian's relationship with the gospel is not like a race. It's not like running a race where it's about running far and running fast and reaching a finish line. That's not what the gospel is about. It's not, it's, about, it's not about, okay, I've got this. Now, in the Christian life, I need to keep going. I need to, I need to progress forward. That's not what it's about. The Christian's relationship to the gospel is like mining. The objective is to dig deeper and deeper into the gospel because there are gold and, and diamonds to be unearthed. There are new beauties, there are new excellencies to discover about Jesus and what he's done for us. For you to grow in your Christian life, you need gospel reminders because, listen, the gospel never changes, but you do. Therefore, applying the gospel to yourself is always a new endeavor. The results are never the same. Because you are not the first person, you are not the same person that you were when you first believed. When you first believed the gospel, it meant something to you. But since then, you've changed. And because you've changed, what the gospel means and how it applies to your life will be different. You're not the same person you were 10, 5, 1 year ago. Which means that the way the gospel applies to your life, it never has an end. There are actually unlimited possibilities. Because every time you go back to it, you are a different person. So the gospel ministers to you in new and different ways. And so my question is, how can you say, let's move on to something else when you've not even scratched the surface? And there are depths yet to be plunged in the gospel. And so for our church... We desperately need weekly reminders. That's what coming to church is all about. If you look at our order of worship, what is all of this God's majesty, God's mercy, God's members, God's message, God's mission? What is all that about? That's not just a cute way of ordering our worship. This is meant to tell us the gospel story. God invites us, and we're sinners, so God gives us mercy. Not only does he give us mercy, but he brings us into his family as members. Then he speaks to us in his message, and then he sends us out in his mission. When we come to church on Sunday, you know what we're doing? We are rehearsing the gospel story. We are, from the beginning of worship to the end of worship, rehearsing, reminding ourselves of the gospel story. Why, why do we confess our sins? Because we are reminding ourselves that we are broken people. 
Why are we confessing our faith? Because we need to be reminded and remind ourselves of what we believe in. Why do we sing songs? We need to remind ourselves of the wonderful truths of who God is and what he's done. And I'm going to just take a side note on this. This is why our songs need to be gospel-centered. They need to be rich in truth and scripture, not fluffy in content with words that don't really say anything. I'm sick of repetitive, repetitive lines that say nothing and nothing because at the end of it, I'm not blessed. I'm only left without breath. Our praise songs, listen to this, our praise songs should be able to teach us the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? You should be able to pick up a good praise song, read it, and go, I know what the gospel is. Here's the second benefit of that. It's hard to memorize the Bible, isn't it, for everyone who's trying to memorize 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? But I guarantee if you put that verse into a song, you would know it in five minutes. And so our songs need to remind us of the gospel. Actually, if you look at the, the order of worship, I don't know if you've noticed it, but sermon was taken out. For the past, I don't know, three months now, it's been gospel message. Why? Because what is this time in the service? It's a reminder of the gospel. We need it. But it's not just about you. Here's another reason why I think all of you should feel very convicted to come into church every Sunday. It's not only because you need the reminders of the gospel, but it's because the people around you need the reminders of the gospel. They need you to sing so loud that they are hearing the gospel. They need you to confess your faith so loud that they're being reminded of the gospel. They need you to go to community groups so that you can stir one another up with the gospel. They need you to to come to service so we can pray for one another with gospel truths. You see, I mean, it's actually just selfish to think, I only need to go to church because I need to be reminded of these things. But how about you need to come to church because God is going to use you to remind somebody else. And that's how community fostering begins to happen. Gospel centrality in the church means that we speak and we sing and we pray the gospel week after week because every time we walk in here, we are victims of gospel amnesia, aren't we? We've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten the good news. And so we need to come week after week to be reminded of the truth. That leads to our third point, the centrality of the gospel. Now we're still on verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you've received, in which you stand. And then verse 2, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now Paul could have said this. Paul could have said, I preached to you gospel, and you received it. And he, he could have ended it there. I preached, you've received, done deal. But the gospel is more than just to be received. Paul uses this expression, stand in the gospel. It means you need to be firm in the gospel. You need to be, your feet need to be planted, rooted in the gospel. It needs to be the foundation, the grounds, the central piece to your life. You know, Psalm 1 gives us this imagery like a tree that's planted by streams of, of, of water. And because of that, it bears fruit and its leaves never wither. And the same applies for a believer planted in the gospel. 
being planted in the gospel, fruit, the fruit of the Spirit abounds in your life. Generosity and mercy and love and patience and compassion and forgiveness should emanate. It should flow out because we are standing in the living streams of God's goodness and God's grace and God's gospel. You see, if the gospel is not central in the life of a believer, what is he planted on? He's planted on his own self-righteousness or her own efforts. And you will begin to rot inside as a Christian. A Christian who is not centered on the gospel will become nasty to one another. Why? Because because they are so self-righteous. Their self-righteous odor will turn people off. They'll be full of judgment and criticism. And eventually they'll become toxic to others' spiritual health. In the church, if we lose the centrality of the gospel, then you know what we'll become? We'll become, you know, people with a critical spirit and an impatient heart and an intolerant attitude. We will lose all compassion. When people come in and and they're broken and they've failed and they're repenting, we won't receive them. We'll judge them. We'll heap shame and guilt upon them for not being perfect. We'll refuse to give them the grace that we have received so abundantly. But Paul says, no, we must stand in the gospel. We must hold fast to it. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's delivered to them the gospel, what he received, the gospel. And how does he describe it? First importance. First importance. It's first. Everything else comes after it. The gospel must occupy a central place in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. And so, you know, I just want to ask you, How central is the gospel in your life? Now, I heard this exercise. It's attributed to to Jerry Bridges, um, who's an author of of many gospel books. But basically, he says this. Imagine uh, your whole life. All the way on the far left is a dot, and that's the moment you were born. And then all the way on the far right is another dot, and that's your death, right? And then he says, imagine right in the middle is a dot that marks your conversion. And he, and he says, whether or not you actually know the day, the specific time that you were saved, that's not the point. But that dot in the middle represents the moment you were saved. And he says this, he asks this question. So from your moment of birth to the moment you were saved and converted, what was the greatest spiritual need in your life? What did you need most? And you, and you hear that, and you probably think, well, I needed the gospel. I, I needed grace. I needed forgiveness. I needed Jesus. And then Jerry Bridges asked this question, okay, that's right, that's good. Now, from your moment of conversion until your death, your life now as a Christian, what is your greatest spiritual need? And there's a lot of great answers. Some people would say, well, we need discipleship. We need community. We need evangelism training. We need knowledge of the Bible. We need spiritual disciplines. But Jerry Bridges points out the greatest need even after our conversion is still the gospel. Because the gospel that saves you is the same gospel that sustains you. The gospel that deals with sin's punishment is the same gospel that deals with sin's power and sin's presence in your life. You see, when Paul says the gospel is of first importance, don't read that as the gospel is the first step. That's not what he's saying. 
First importance means that it has the primary place in both the life of the church and the life of the Christian. And so when we say we want to be a gospel-centered church, we want gospel centrality to be what we're about, what does that look like? Because I know that's kind of hard to imagine, and here's the best way that I could think about it. We're all familiar with um, being self-centered, right? I had to read up about it because I didn't know what that meant. But <laughs> No, self-centered. Being self-centered, of course, doesn't mean that we think of ourselves every single moment of the day. But it does mean that self-interest informs all of our thoughts that we think and all of the decisions we make. Our self-interest informs everything. Uh, Dana Ortland writes, A self-centered person passes all he does and thinks through the filter of self. Self triumphs everything else and orders all other loves accordingly. So if we understand that, then in the same way, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? To be gospel-centered means that everything we do as a church and every decision we make needs to pass through the filter of the gospel. It needs to be viewed not in the interest of self, but in the interest of Jesus Christ. What God has done for us in his son needs to have implications. And so when we want to have an event, when we want to um, budget in a certain way, we need to have the gospel in mind. The gospel must align all of our priority so that, yes, we can do things that, oh, this seems very practical. Oh, making this decision, oh, that's very preferential. Uh, serving in this way, oh, that's, that's very, you know, we don't have to leave our comfort zone, but if we are centered on the gospel, we're gladly able to give these things up because our interests are informed by grace. So the gospel, it's my prayer here at Cornerstone, not just here as a church, but in each one of your own lives, that the gospel begins to be the most important thing. It empowers all that you do. It becomes a worldview by which you spend your money, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you speak your words, how you serve, how you do your work, how you perceive your ambitions, how you understand your identity, that all of this is being informed by the gospel. Now, okay, what... Very practically, then, what is the gospel? And Paul gives us a summary. Um, and so we're going to look at this. This is our fourth point. Paul's summary of the gospel. You know, the gospel, we c there are whole books written on, on the gospel, but Paul basically, he, he does this amazing thing. He, he brings the gospel down. He knows so much theology, he's able to bring it down into um, two doctrines. You know, they say anybody who knows something really well can explain it even to a three-year-old. Right? They've mastered it so much they can distill down the most important things and they're very clear about it. And we know that about Apostle Paul. He has a great view of the gospel. Read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul has a great understanding of the gospel, but he's able to bring it down to two core truths. They are the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 3 to 5 with me. Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Paul boils everything in the gospel, summarizes down to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk about each one of those. Okay, first let's talk about Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Died for our sins means Jesus Christ died as our substitute. Now you go, okay, I know that, I understand that, but I don't think you quite do. Jesus took our sins and died in our place. Now here's what's so radical about this. Jesus Christ died for our sins, meaning whatever sin is required a death. Somebody had to die. We, we had to die, but Jesus died in our place. So what is sin and why does somebody have to die as a result of it? And if I ask you what is sin, you'll probably say something like, it's breaking God's law. We all understand it that way. But actually, sin is much deeper than merely breaking God's law. Sin, really, the chief nature of sin is our attempt and our desire to be God. We not only want to be a God, we want to be God. We want to take his place, right? Think about the motive for your sins. We want to substitute ourselves in his place. We want his glory. We want uh, his control. We want him to serve us. We want him to do our will. And this observation, it's not mine, it comes from John Stott, but he points out that the heart of man's problem is his desire to exchange places with God. He wants to be God. And so this isn't merely, uh, this is not merely breaking the king's law, but it's actually trying to steal the king's throne. Right? He's trying to wear the king's crown. He's trying to sleep in the king's bedroom. And if you understand it this way, then sin is this treasonous act against the cosmic king, and the punishment, of course, is death. But here, again, is what's so radical about the gospel. Our crime is trying to take the place of God on his throne. And so what's God's response? God chooses to take our place on the cross. This is what it means for Christ to die for our sins. When we try so unsuccessfully to kick God out of his palace, and we try to knock God knock the, the crown off of God's head so that we can wear it, we should be destroyed. We should be thrown into prison, and the key should be thrown away. But how does God respond? When we try to kick him out of his palace, he left his palace. When we tried to knock off his crown, he set it aside, and he came. And when our chief sin was to try and exchange places with God, God's remedy was to exchange places with us. Amen? Substitution. Why did he have to substitute himself? Because our chief crime was our attempt to substitute places with God. And Jesus Christ meets that. And he comes and he dies in our place on a cross for our sins. Now the second thing Paul mentions, the second tenant or pillar is the resurrection. In verse 4 he says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now you got to understand this, the resurrection of Jesus is really what changed everything. If I ask you what is the gospel about, my, my fear is that what we tend to do is we end with the death of Christ. But you know what happened after Jesus Christ died on the cross? All of his followers ran away. After Jesus Christ died, they all scattered, they all hid, they all laid their heads low. 
The death of Christ did not fill the disciples with great boldness. They did not see Jesus hanging on a tree and then go, okay, now I'm going to give my life for him. They saw Jesus being tried on a court and began to deny him. They saw Jesus being nailed to a tree, and they didn't come to minister him like the women did, but they hid and they ran away. The death of Christ didn't embolden the disciples. It, in fact, it zapped every ounce of courage from them. So the question is, what changed it all? And the answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection made them come out of hiding. The resurrection emboldened their faith. Why? Because the resurrection meant that everything Jesus claimed to be and to do was true. The resurrection is a great stamp and seal that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Because it meant Jesus Christ's death really does forgive sins. His sacrifice really does take away God's punishment. His blood really is the payment to purchase us. Jesus Christ can say, I'm dying for your sins, and then die on a cross, and then we wait. And we would not know if that was true until we went to heaven or until we died and faced judgment. But the very death of Jesus Christ and all that he claimed to do through it is proven and sealed in the resurrection. And here's one way to think about it. I had um, never gone to Sam's Club or Costco until I started being a pastor because then I need to go buy food and stuff for church. And so the very first time I went to Sam's Club, you know, I bought a bunch of things, and I didn't know you were supposed to show the receipt on the way out. So I took the receipt, I just shoved it in my pocket amongst all the other stuff in my pocket, and I'm just heading out. And then the guy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, have a good day. And he stops me. And I'm like, well, what's your deal? And he's like, and I was like, I paid for it. And he's like, no, you have to show me your receipt. And I was like, you think I'm lying to you? I'm a pastor. Like, <laughs> we don't lie. And I said, what do you mean? I, I promise I paid for it. He's like, you can promise all you want, but until you show me your receipt, I can't believe your word. I can't believe what you're saying is true. And so, you know, I felt so like, triumph when I took out the receipt and I was like I told you I wasn't lying and I looked behind me and everyone had their receipts out because they knew <laughs> what to do but that receipt what did it do it validated my claim that receipt proves that everything in the cart was fully paid for it belonged to me in the same way what is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the receipt that you are fully paid for that you belong to him that everything he promised in his death is now true and real. The gospel, Jesus Christ dying for us, exchanging places with us, going from heaven to a manger to a cross for us in the glorious resurrection. How can we go, I've heard that, now let's move on. You can't move on. You must move deeper into it. Especially as we realize this, and, and I'll end soon. We've got to realize this. The gospel doesn't just change the believer's destiny or destination. It changes the believer. I, if your gospel is only a ticket into heaven, then you have such a small view of the gospel. 
it doesn't just change your destiny where you're headed. It actually changes you. If you look at verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is basically saying, I'm the least of the apostles because of my past. Right? Before he was Paul, he was Saul, a Pharisee who persecuted the church, did everything in his power to stop the spread of the gospel. And he, when he says, I'm unworthy to be an apostle, that's not a statement of self-pity. It's actually a statement meant to highlight God's transforming grace. Because the gospel, again, is not just about changing your beliefs. It's about changing your life. So when Paul experienced the gospel, it didn't just save him, it transformed him, which is why in verse 10 he's able to say, although I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. What Paul is saying was, I used to live this way, and then when I met Christ, my life changed. There was nothing in my life that was left unchanged by the gospel. It wasn't just my future that was changed. Paul's saying, my identity was changed, my ambitions were changed, the purpose for my life was changed, my mission was changed. Even his name was changed to signify that he was not the same person that he once was. This is what the gospel does to people. It changes you. It transforms you. If you would have it be central in your life, if you would, would work hard to know Love deepen yourself in God's gospel. It can renew you. It can change you. It can heal you. It can comfort you. It can embolden you. The gospel is not just about a transfer of your, of your destiny from hell to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's a transformation of your identity from sinner to saint. It's a transformation of your ambitions from utterly selfish to utterly selfless. It's a transformation where you no longer live according to the world, but you live according to the word. So my hope is that I want the church, our church, to get the gospel. But not only the church, but each one of us individually. I want to see the maturity of believers happen when you demand more and more of the gospel, not less and less of it. That as, you know, my sermons are pretty predictable. Every once in a while, I'll try to throw you a curveball. But it's pretty predictable. Somewhere in the last point, I'm going to talk about Jesus, right? And you're going to have two options. You're going to go, all right, he's getting to Jesus. Or you can say, he's getting to Jesus. Which do you want? Do you want the sermon to be about Christ and what he's done for you and for you to get excited in that? Or do you want to say, okay, now he's talking about Jesus. He's no longer talking about me, so I don't have to listen. You know, we have a choice. We need to fight for gospel centrality. I went with this. St. Augustine is uh, attributed for saying this. I have seen the depths, but I cannot find the bottom. I think that's utterly true of the gospel. I have seen the depths. I cannot find the gospel. And so this year, as a church and as followers of Jesus, let's begin the search. Let's look for the depths and know that even into eternity, we will never find the bottom. Let us not move beyond the gospel, but go deeper into it. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for calling us out of darkness into a marvelous light. I thank you that you've changed 
the course of our eternity from a place of darkness and punishment and wrath to a place where there are feasts, a banquet table, angels singing. We thank you that the gospel saves us and promises us a better future, but we thank you that the gospel is so much more, and I pray that we would all understand that it's so much more, that the gospel does something to us now. It transforms us now. You know, Paul was a persecutor of the church, but the gospel said that his past no longer mattered. I pray for my friends here, they would understand that the forgiveness and the death of Jesus Christ means that their past no longer matters. What they've done, how they've lived, no longer matters. And at the same time, Lord, Paul also wrote that by the grace of God, I am what I am, that in the present, you have transformed him, you have renewed him, you filled him with hope. I pray that we would come to understand the gospel's power to change us, to free us from our sin, to free us from our self-centeredness, to free us from our doubts and fears and worries. Father, I pray that we would have this full-orbed understanding of the gospel that addresses our past, our present, and our future. And I pray that as we are blown away by the grace you would show to us, that we would commit ourselves to digging deeper into gospel truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who paid for it all with his blood and showed the receipt of his purchase in his resurrection, and the love of God the Father Almighty who responded to our desire to take his spot by taking our spot and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who leads us into greater understanding and experience of the richness of the gospel and the blessing of this triune God be with God's people both now and forever. Now hear the dismissal. Oh, we seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Go in peace.